let's dive into the Word together, all right? Uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of John. I'm, uh, I, got, I use a, an iPad for my notes up here. you got this little thing, and I put it the... I never told you guys this, I don't think. I, I put a tracker at the top of each uh, outline, you know, kind of hybrid thing that I got going. And um, I, I track how many sermons I've preached in my life. I just think it'd be cool at the end of all things when I'm like 80, if I make it that far, um, to just see how many, you know. So today's 600. Today's 600. So I think that's kind of neat. So, well, I didn't ask for that. Praise him, you know. Well, that's not why I said it, but praise God just uh, for the longevity. Genuinely, I, I think it's just neat. Um, it's, an, it's an awesome opportunity, and I don't take it for granted every time uh, that I get to stand here and, and shepherd you guys through the Word. So, <clears throat> well, if you will, open to John 19. You'll see the title behind me. Uh, I titled today's message, Hills to Die On. Um, if you are a grammar Nazi like me, I realize that that is incorrect. You're not supposed to end in a preposition. It's supposed, if it's correct, it would be hills on which to die. Any of you English teachers in the room, maybe, I know. You don't have to say anything. I don't want an email later saying, you know, you're wrong about that. I know that. But the phrase that you may know is, it's not a hill worth dying on, right? Or don't, don't die on that hill or so something along those lines. You guys may have heard that phrase. And uh, this week I was uh, talking with our, our new um, ministry assistant, Connie Wilson. If you haven't met her, come up to the office sometime and, and say hello. She'd love to get to know you. Uh, she's uh, in the office these days uh, during the week with me. So uh, she is wonderful. By the way, she's the wife of Derek Wilson, who is the pastor at Faith Baptist over on the Highway 19. She is a, a solid woman. So uh, I'm thankful to have her there to, to serve our church. Um, but uh, anyway, she and I talked together about it's, it's hills on which to die, but we're going to let it slide anywhere there it is. But if you don't know what that means, that phrase, hills on which to die, or rather, hills to die on, it kind of means it's something isn't a big enough deal for you to stand firm on it and perhaps even stand in opposition to someone else over it. And there's a lot of hills, genuinely, that are just not worth dying on. And maybe you work with difficult people and you have to remind yourself of that a lot. You know what? It's not a hill worth dying on. I'm just going to let this one go. Some of the hills worth not dying on. Or hills, yeah, that we should not die on. One would be uh, whether or not you should put nuts and you make brownies. That's not a hill worth dying on. But the right answer is that you should not ever put nuts in brownies. But it's not a hill worth dying on, so I'm just going to let it go. Another one is that when a guest is in your vehicle, they should not touch the radio. But hey, it's not a hill worth dying on. Sam has touched the radio in my car before, and I didn't say anything. About it. He, just, he said it to me, and I was like, yeah, I wasn't going to say anything, but it's not a hill worth dying on. Some of you may say it's not appropriate to wear black with navy blue. I disagree, but it's not a hill worth dying on. I could show you a picture of myself looking very dapper in navy blue and black, but again, it's not a hill worth dying on. I know those are silly examples, but there, there are some hills even in church life that are not worth dying on. Things like whether we should use a physical hymn book versus words on a screen, or maybe this type of preaching versus this type of preaching, or while some of those may come closer to the line than others, I think we can all for the most part agree that those even are hills that are not worth dying on to break fellowship or leave the church. But I would suggest to you that doctrinally speaking, biblically speaking, there are some hills worth dying on. Just a few of them may be Salvation by grace through faith. That's a hill worth dying on. It's not a matter of works. Jesus accomplished our salvation, not us, right? That's a hill worth dying on, and we believe in that by faith. Another one would be that salvation is only through Christ alone. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Singular, right? That's a hill worth dying on. In other words, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallible Word of God, that to me is a hill worth dying on. And I think that you would probably agree with all three of those. I say that to say this, that Calvary was literally 
a hill to die on, right? Literally, it was a hill on which Jesus died. But when we look at that hill, John introduces us as 21st century believers to a few, I'm going to argue, hills that are worth dying on because they are the very firm foundation upon which our hope that we just sang about can stand. And so I'm going to introduce you guys to a few of those this morning as we look at our passage this morning, all right? So look, at me, look with me at John 19. We're going to start in verse 16 and go through verse 30. John 19, starting in verse 16 through verse 30, it says this. So he delivered him over to be crucified. And this is really where we're going to begin, is the second part of verse 16. So it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. There's a lot of things that we could say about this passage, and a lot of observations that we could make, but we're just going to go kind of quickly and make just a handful of them, all right? First, I want to show you the map that we've been looking at for some time now, and show you where this is all taking place. You notice, by the way, in verse uh, 16 and 17, it talks about them taking him to the place where he would be crucified. It says, they took him out. The reason for that is because traditionally anybody that was receiving capital punishment and death by stoning or crucifixion in this example had to be removed from the camp. Uh, This is a really, really Old Testament example that was brought into the New Testament to remove someone that had been bearing a curse. They could not be among the people because then it would compromise the people. And so if Jesus was going to bear the curse of sin, it had to happen outside of the camp. And so they didn't know all that and they weren't putting all that together. We know that as New Testament believers that there was some symbolic things that are happening here. And so you'll see in verse, or number nine, way out there to the left side of that screen, uh, that's the place of Golgotha. That's the place where Jesus was to be crucified. And right before that, we know that he was at the Praetorium, which is where six and eight there at the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, and lots of other things we've been talking about these last few weeks. But these are what I call the last steps of Jesus. And these are pretty well traced. Even you can go to some places where they think that these things may still even be, even today in in modern day. It's kind of neat. 
Uh, and some of you guys may have even been there if you've been to the Holy Land. So, uh, but this is kind of where it's taking place. And the things that have happened right before this, just as far as recapping a couple things, we talked about the Barabbas exchange, that Jesus was taken in as a prisoner and the guilty man was liberated, which is a great illustration for the gospel, that we are Barabbas in that illustration, right? Where we are the guilty party that is released and deemed innocent because the God-man took his place. It's a great illustration of the gospel. We then saw last week that Jesus, on Easter Sunday, right, we talked about that Jesus was sort of mockingly crowned as the king of the Jews. They even gave him a physical crown of thorns, a bloodied body, wrapped in a purple mock robe of royalty, shedding blood on what we know as the day of preparation for the Passover, the day that lambs would be slaughtered in order to cover the sins symbolically of the people. The physical lamb of God was being slaughtered to cover the, the sins of the people, and it's just laced in such beautiful gospel imagery the narrative leaves the praetorium to Golgotha which is where we are today the word Golgotha is an Aramaic word that's sort of transliterated into English you can take that image down but Golgotha comes from an Aramaic which is Golgotha it means skull that's why the name is Golgotha we see that you may be thinking well I know it by Calvary Uh, Calvary comes from a Latin word called Calvaria which means skull So it's really just a Latin translation of an Aramaic term, and so that's why we have the two terms for this place where Jesus was crucified. Before we get to the things I'm going to put on the screen, if you're taking notes today, we'll get there in a moment. But first, I want to look at verses 16 and 17 and read them, make a few observations, and then we're going to get into it, okay? Verse 16, the second part, says they took Jesus. 17 says, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called uh, Golgotha, which I just mentioned a moment ago. Now, what's not mentioned here, again, we we go from him saying, you're going to be crucified, to all of a sudden he is walking out of the city to the place where he will be crucified. And if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that there's a lot of details there that have now been skipped over. And John does that because, simply put, he knows the story's already been told by the other guys, and those details don't really serve the big picture of what he's trying to communicate. John's got a very one-track mind. He's got an intentional direction that he's taking here. Some of the things that are not mentioned are the terrible scourging that Jesus underwent. He carried his own crossbeam on his back. He didn't make it the entire way, but somewhere outside of the city, Simon of Cyrene came in and aided him. He picked up his cross for Jesus. Now, again, John doesn't mention that. We know that he probably dropped it because of the severe pain and blood loss. Jesus literally couldn't make it because they had beaten him so severely. And John omits this about Simon because, once again, It's irrelevant to John's aim. It distracts from his main points. And the main points that John is trying to communicate are these. That Jesus isn't a captured lamb. He is a sovereignly offered lamb. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is not a captured lamb. He is a sovereignly offered lamb. In other words, Christ is not, even in this illustration, Christ is not being disarmed. Sin is. Christ is not being disarmed. Sin is. And this was the plan long, long ago. That what we're seeing here is that Jesus is king, and the fulfillment of him being a king is being unfolded in our passage today. We just sang the words of that song, uh, The Lord is our salvation, and part of that says he flowers each promise of his word. Basically, there are promises that are in, and God is constantly blooming those promises. We're going to look at a few of those where Jesus becomes the fulfillment of things that were written a long time before he even walked on this earth. And I'm going to argue that there's a few hills to die on here. The first one is this. That Jesus reigns despite cultural mockery. That Jesus reigns despite cultural mockery. 
I mean, again, I'm anchoring that in the fact that that is a hill worth dying on, church. Jesus does reign. He will never be crowned as king in this life by all people. One day every tongue will confess. But in this life, he will be mocked. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus reigns. I'm going to say this one time real quick. Please take notes today, okay? Especially today. I think that there's some really good things for us to take home. So please consider uh, doing that. That Jesus reigns despite cultural mockery. Remember, the reminder here is of the extent of the shame attached to his death. In America, we have a couple of forms of capital punishment. People may be given the electric chair or lethal injection, but those people are seen as a special kind of criminal, are they not? When you hear of someone receiving capital punishment, you want to say, man, what did they do? Or, and there's a really sad, terrible story that goes behind this. You think of something like the Boston Marathon bomber or something like that where you think, death penalty? Man, someone must have really done something, a special kind of criminal. You see, even before Jesus was spat on, cursed at, and and the like, Jesus was mocked simply by the manner in which he was going to be killed. He had suffered pain, blood loss. To breathe, it was necessary on the cross to push up with your legs and pull up with your arms. It would open the chest cavity in order for you to breathe, that your lungs would function. If you're hanging there, you couldn't breathe. And so he was literally pulling himself up just to take breaths. The function of the death, the death by crucifixion was by design, not just capital punishment, it was death by a pitiful suffocation. It looked pathetic to see a human to be corpse struggling just to do the basic function. And so by very design, it was a shameful death, a mockery, and it was pathetic to see. This is the death of our king. And that should sound weird. Because it's a great paradox. The irony of a great king, the highest of all, being brought the lowest of all. Look at verses 18 through 20. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Remember that, okay? This uh, inscription. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. This placard was hung a lot of times around the criminals' necks while they were walking out of the city, and if not there, then it would be kind of held by someone walking in front of them to signify, this is the, t- this is the person and this is the crime of the person that follows, or again, around their neck and say, this was my crime. This is the thing that's putting me in this position. And so they would then take that placard and nail it above them for all that passed by there to be able to see. It publicized the nature of the crime as a warning against other people. Uh, sort of to say, oh, that's, that was the crime, and, and that's, that's what he did. And, and Rome would say, don't you dare do what, what they did. Um, this is, this is kind of gross, but when I was in college, just to tell you, it, how many stories begin that way, by the way? Uh, when I was in college, this is so bad, I don't know why I'm going to say this. I even have it crossed out on my notes, like questionable, don't, maybe. But um, you know how like, sometimes you get dead bugs in your, in your house, you know, like roaches or spiders? I didn't do this with roaches, but with spiders and some bugs like that, um, my roommate would say, why don't you throw those away? And I'm like, I want to leave it out as a warning to the others. <laughs> That's kind of sociopath material, isn't it? I don't know. It's, it's literally crossed out. And I, anyway, the Romans kind of did this too. They had this placard di- displayed for everybody to see, and they did it because they wanted it to be a warning to anybody. And so they said, if you're going to do what this person did, 
this is where you're headed. It's a really sadistic thing. Effective. But that's what they did. They'd hang it there and say, this is your fate if you call yourself a king. It says that it was mentioned in Aramaic and Greek and in Latin, which may seem like just a brush over detail. I'm going to tell you why. Aramaic was the common language of pretty much every Jewish person that lived in the Palestine area. Any Jew spoke Aramaic, and so if they looked at that and they saw an Aramaic king of the Jews, they know what it said. The warning would be effective for them. Greek was the language of many Jews, most Jews even, but also the entire Roman Empire. Any Roman citizen, Gentile, and most of the Jews walk by, they see it in Greek, and it's a warning for them. The third language is even in Latin, and it's in Latin, and this is interesting, because the language of the Roman military was Latin. They spoke Latin, and they read Latin, and so it was even there, even a military official, if you even think about going against Caesar, you're, you're dead meat. And so there's this big warning saying, you're, this is your fate if you even think about it. The Romans wanted these public declarations of shame to be as public as possible. And in this instance, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, obviously spoken in jest. Look at verses 21 and 22. So the chief priests of the Jews, and this is where a conflict starts. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, and this is so good, what I have written, I have written. In other words, it's not coming down. I'm not changing it. That's what it says. Do y'all know anybody that always has to have the last word? Don't look at your spouse. That'd be bad. I've just saved you, many of you, right? You guys know anybody like that that always feels like they have to have the last word? Unfortunately for my parents, I got confident and witty at an early age. It was actually unfortunate for me because it, was, it caused me to be the victim of many spankings. Uh, but that little last word thing, I'll be honest, it's really, really annoying. And as an adult now, it becomes increasingly annoying anytime somebody feels like they have to have the last word, especially your child, right? It's like, shut up, stop talking, I'm your parent, right? That last word is especially annoying. I can only imagine from my parents what that was like from an arrogant little kid like me. Um, but you even see this, like, it's so funny, the last word thing. One of the ways that the last word is sort of inconspicuously thrown in by some, even adults, is... I'm just going to take the high road. That's like the funniest phrase in the world to me because it should never be said. Because <laughs> if you say it, you've taken the low road. Do you see what I'm saying? That's, that's kind of ironic. You hear this from like athletes and say, you know, the, you know, the media, they say that, but I'm just going to take the high road. It's like, you didn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, you see this, or maybe from people that treat Facebook as their own public diary. And if that's one of you, then sorry. But taking the high road, if you're telling someone you're taking the high road, it's actually taking the low road, right? If you're taking the high road, just take it. Last word can be petty, and that's my point, is that what we're seeing here in our passage today is a competition for who's going to get the last word, and it's immature, and it's petty, and it's childish, but even adults can do this, even us, right? We can do this. But this is what's happening between Pilate and the chief priest. Pilate's placard was his immature last word. But God is going to use that last word for big purposes. What we're seeing is this final back and forth that's happening that's been lasting all morning, not this morning, but this morning in our passage. What we've seen is that Pilate has told the Jews, he's your king. And they've said, no, he's not. And then Pilate says, okay, fine, then you go and crucify him. And they say, we can't. And then he says, he's innocent. And then they say, you're no friend of Caesar. And then he says, okay, if he's a king, then that's just what we'll say. We'll call him that. We'll call him the king. And they say, no, no. Say that that's what he says he is, but he's not really. And Pilate says, shut up. I'm putting up there that he says he's a king. And what we see here is, it's so neat. In the placard, we see three things. Pilate is taunting, the Jews are complaining, and yet the grand irony is that God is proclaiming. Isn't that neat? It's this volley match between two bitter individuals, parties, 
And yet God is saying, they speak truer than they realize. This is the cross of the king. The principle that I want to see here, and I want you to see, is that the culture, their culture, our culture, then and now, listen, the culture can mock the king, they can attempt to bring him low, they can attempt to hurt his name, but nothing changes because the king is still the name above every name and he bears it rightly. And the culture can mock that and they can dismiss that and they can fight over that, but it doesn't change the facts that Jesus sits on the throne, church. The world will always say that we're on the wrong side of history, believers. That the church will be subject to insults. But listen, we do not serve the world or the ever-moving cultural standard of morality. We serve King Jesus, and their mockery does not and cannot dethrone him. And I'll say again what I said just a moment ago, that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're just getting a head start. No matter what the culture says about who Jesus is, God has had the final word, and Christ sits on the throne. Amen? And that is, and was, and will forever be a hill worth dying on. The second one is this, that Jesus is everything, even if we are left with nothing. Jesus is everything, even if we are left with nothing. And that's sort of what we see next in our passage. That John's big goal, and has been for all of this book, is to tell us that Jesus is more than a man. He is fully that. He is man. And yet he is divine. He is the Word God made flesh. And so Jesus is more than just a human individual. He is that, but he is a God individual. And one of the key ways that he demonstrates this is not only with Jesus' awareness of the Old Testament, but specific fulfillments of Old Testament messianic texts. And one of the common ones is Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's written by David 1,000 years prior to the events that we're looking at today. Um, who is undergoing physical distress whenever David writes this? He's, David is undergoing verbal mockery of his opponents. And so what David does in Psalm 22 is he sort of writes down this illustration of an execution scene, this symbolic illustration of an execution scene and says, I'm sort of at the center of this and this is how I feel. In this passage in, in Psalm 22 verse 16, with evil men on both sides of him, surrounding him, criminals, floggers, Jesus in that instance, right? Psalm 22, verse 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Written a thousand years before Calvary, but it sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? And he's not just talking about the floggers that are surrounding Jesus, the Roman soldiers. No, but literally Jesus is surrounded by criminals, right? On either side of him. So we see here sort of a fulfillment of a messianic text, Psalm 22. Another one is Psalm 22, verse 18, just two verses after that. The executioners that David is saying, they split up my clothes. He says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus is undergoing right here in our passage, a thousand years after David writes these things down. You see, David's point is that he is experiencing elaborate abandonment, losing everything. And I'm going to tell you today that Jesus was that psalm's fulfillment. In John, that's exactly what happens next. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. 
but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Here's the image that we're looking at here. There's four soldiers, and they have clothes or garments, and it says that they uh, are divide them into four pieces. Now listen, that could be that they're literally dividing a, an outer, like a robe is what they call it. Garments would be like a robe, and so they're dividing a robe that Jesus has that's seamed, I guess, and they're dividing it into four parts, but I did some study on these commentaries and things, and I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think they're literally dividing one garment into four. Jesus wouldn't only have one garment that made up his clothes. He'd have five. So he'd have a tunic, which we'll get to in a second, but the four that he has are his outer garments. He'd also have uh, sandals, a headpiece, and a belt. And so I'm going to suggest to you that they're not just ripping in part in four parts his outer garment. They're dividing up his clothes. And so each soldier says, I'm going to get the sandals, I'm going to get the belt, I'm going to get the head covering, and I'm going to get the outer garments. But that leaves one left over, a tunic. And they say, we're not going to rip it apart. Can't do that without kind of destroying it. And so I guess we'll just have to cast lots over this one. The point is that Jesus is literally stripped of everything that he has. And it's a fulfillment of a messianic text that came way before this. But there's something else that's happening here. The last time Jesus' garments are mentioned, do you know? We looked at it several months ago in John 13. The last time Jesus' garments were mentioned was actually just a week prior. It was months ago for us, but it was a week prior. And it was when Jesus was taking the Lord's Supper with his disciples. Do you remember what he did after supper? He took off his garments. He removed the outer garments to wash his disciples' feet. This image of removing his divine status. It says he laid aside his wardrobe, taking up that of a servant. He took up a towel. And this image goes one step further here a week later. You see, at Calvary, he wasn't just laying aside his outer garments. He was stripped of all of his garments, stripped of all of his glory as he bore all of sin's shame. The paradox is that they stripped him of everything, and please hear this, they stripped him of everything, and yet they could strip him of nothing. That's the paradox, the irony. They could take everything away from him, but at the end of the day, he was simply fulfilling who he was, and that's that they could take nothing from him, because he's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. They could strip him, but it only proved his true identity. And in the same vein, church, hear me say this, the world can attempt to strip Christ followers of everything, but if you're in Christ, you can be stripped of nothing. You can lose everything. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you will have lost nothing at the end of the day because the main thing is the main thing and we can never be plucked from his hand. That's why John 15, 18, in that farewell discourse, Jesus told his disciples, again, right before these events transpired, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Paul sort of had the same thing in his mind, I think, in Philippians 3, 8, when he wrote to Christians and said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen, for this sake, for his sake rather, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be times that you must lose something if it means gaining him. You may lose friends, 
because you've stood with Jesus. You may lose money or an opportunity for some financial gain because you've withstood and said, I'm a person of biblical principle. There may be a time that you lose reputation or comfort. Jesus did. There may even be moments in your life and we can just say soberly that there may be moments in your life where it feels like truly everything has been stripped from you. I have conversations with a lot of y'all and I know that several of you in this room if you don't feel like that now you have felt like that recently where you say what else is there I've got nothing you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and you're just ready to go because life just feels empty I got nothing and to that there's no magic words to say and sprinkle on your situation to make it all go away but God's word has some neat things to say about that. That Jesus was stripped of everything that he had on earth. And yet they could strip nothing of him. And the same is true of you if you're in Christ. That's why Paul said that. I count it all as loss. Because at the end of the day, it is. In comparison to the infinite worth of having a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't take away the sorrow or the grieving, but it does lace it in hope. One guy that knew a lot of suffering was Solomon. Every woman he could ever want, every dime he could ever want, every treasure, every possession. And yet at the end of his book that he wrote, Ecclesiastes, he had this to say in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's his way of saying, I've had it all, I've seen it all, and I would give it all up if it meant just knowing God. It's a hill worth dying on. The third one is this. Jesus' love is present even if he is absent. And I'm putting that in quotes because we know that physically absent does not mean that God is gone, right? But Jesus was soon leaving this earth, but his love would stick around. It says in verse uh, 24, the very end of verse 24, it says the soldiers did these things. But then verse 25 says something else. It says, but standing by the cross, Jesus were his brother. It goes into something else. So the reason I say that is because uh, in, in the original language that this was written in, the way that this is phrased, it says, so the soldiers did these things, but this. The way that that verbiage is laying there, it's there to contrast. It's saying this was happening with the soldiers, those that were killing him, but this was happening with those that were close to him. And so it's this big juxtaposition that this was the, the place that they're at, this is the place that they were at. The other hand, these guys, soldiers with the women, Jesus' friends, 25 says this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women, and then it says also the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe is John. 26 says this, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother, remember him hanging there on the cross, he sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved, I'm going to argue that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her, the disciple took her to his own home. 
we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but Mary was likely in her late 40s or early 50s, and life expectancy was not as long then as it is now. And it's extremely likely, in fact, almost guaranteed that Joseph had passed away at this point, Mary's husband, that she was widowed. And so based on what Jesus says to her, we can infer there that what Jesus' statement is, that she's a clear widow and that Jesus has been her primary means of provision, that she doesn't have an income. And so he has cared for her in every possible way. And so Jesus is now dying. And so he looks down to his own mother and he says to her, behold your son, behold your mother. His way of saying, I'm giving you to him and I'm giving him to you. I'm going to love you and show love for you and make provision for you even in my absence. He gives another. You see, even in his death, what we see here in the extreme agony of it all, the thing that's on Jesus' mind is caring for his own, his mom, caring for her. It's paramount. You see, despite Jesus' physical exit, his absence to be, he makes provision for his own. If you've been to a handful of weddings in your life, and I think that most of you guys probably have, if you've been to a wedding a few times maybe, you've probably heard during some wedding uh, at least referenced or maybe even the main message of the wedding preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known by many as the love chapter, right? That's the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and you may know some of what it says. Love is patient, love is kind, and so forth and so on. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with preaching that message because it is about love. What better place for love than at a wedding? But Paul is not marrying two people whenever he's saying those words to Corinth. He's talking to a church. He's not even talking to men and women that are romantically involved. He's not talking about the family. He's talking about love within the church. And the reason I say that is, that passage is about the church being the church, shouldering one another, coming together in a world full of reasons, Corinth was in it, to drive people apart. The reason I bring that passage up is to say that God may be absent in the flesh. Jesus may be gone, departed, but God's love, empowered through the work of his spirit, is still present because he is present in us. God's provision for his people, his mom and his friend, is to give them love for one another, fueled and empowered by the love that they have from God. At Fellowship, you'll hear me say that, man, that we are imperfect people, perfectly loved. And then the extension of that is that we are extensions of that love to one another. Because there's a great likelihood that Jesus is not walking through that door. And yet the Spirit of God walks through that door by about 150 to 200 every Sunday morning. We have one another. And we go out of that door. And we fellowship with one another. And we go into that world. And we have one another. Because God has made provision. You know, I've often asked about our church. How's your church going, Caleb? And what's, what's fellowship like? And yada, yada, yada. And man, I, I'm so glad that I can in perfectly good spirit and confidence and not an ounce of deceit say that I love my church. Man, I love you guys. I love our church, y'all. And I say my, not as possessive. I say my because I'm part of you guys. I love your church. I love our church. And I hope that you love your church. And I tell people, I say, if it's not the healthiest church in the county, it's tied. And the reason I can say that so confidently is this. It's not because of the preaching. It's not because of the music. It's not because of an individual, the group of people. It's not because of healthy programs. The reason our church, I'm going to argue, is the healthiest church in our county, and that's not to diss anybody else. It's simply to prop up what God is doing here. And the reason I can say that is because though we are not uniform, our church is unified on the purpose of loving God and loving each other. This is a healthy church. 
because love is paramount. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, it was a divided church, and he said, you want to be bound together in the gospel? Love each other and love other people. This is a healthy church because it's a church family who serves and loves one another, and service, by the way, is empowered by love. Your deacons serve because your deacons love you. Your praise team serves and seeks not to be praised but to serve because your praise team loves you. Your Sunday school teacher serves because your Sunday school teacher loves you. Awana listeners that are coming out in droves because they're having children coming out in droves. Those guys aren't up there because they feel obligated. They're there because they want to serve the church. And service is motivated by love for people. The guys in the booth back there who want to serve you. They're back there not because they're good with sound and techie things. Most of them would say they're not good at that at all. But that's the place that they want to serve. Even Gary. He just looked at me so, it's Greg. Okay, that's a flashback. I'll explain it really quick. When I was like two or three weeks in, I was giving Greg my sermon slides and I called him Gary like five times, three weeks in a row, and no one corrected me. And then someone came and said, why do you keep calling him Gary? It's Greg. And he has never let me forget it. And now I've made it worse. So I'm sorry, Greg. I'll, I'll write you a sorry apology letter or something. Thank you for smiling. That makes me feel so much better. Okay, goodness. Listen, I say all that, to, listen, not just that, kitchen volunteers, Wednesday nights, we, we are busting at the seams, feeding people, over 100 people every Wednesday, feeding them, loving them, serving them, and pouring into them not just physical food, but gospel food. And the reason why isn't because we want to bolster our attendance. It's not because we wanted to show off how good our food is, although it's pretty balling. The reason why we do it is because we love people, man. That's God's extension to us for one another. Jesus was leaving, but he was giving a means of reminding people that he is still around. And that is his people are the provision for one another that we love one another. And Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians 13. How do you best love your church? Love your church. Meet their needs. Serve them. Our church isn't healthy because of a leader. We're healthy because we love each other. And the day we cease to prioritize that is the day that this church even will begin to decay. And it's a hill worth dying on. Oh, and if you're looking for a church family, you should join this one. There's one more, number four. This hill worth dying on is the great exchange. The great exchange. And this is the big one. This is literally the hill that Jesus died on. The great exchange. And man, if you hear nothing else, I just want you to see the beauty. (laughs) This is beautiful, beautiful gospel here. Look at verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, don't miss that word, finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, another fulfillment, he's the Messiah, right? He said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge on a, a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. You see the picture there, right? He's putting this thing on the tip of a stick, holding it up to Jesus who's being crucified. Jesus sort of sticks his mouth over it and sucks that wine out of it. Verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now what's happening is another and one final fulfillment. Psalm 69 verse 21 talks about this and says, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. A final 
fulfillment of Jesus being the Messiah. And I want to make a clarification. This is not the wine that's mixed with myrrh or gall, I think is what maybe your translation may say in Mark chapter 15, 23, when Jesus is on his way to Calvary and they say, drink this, take this, drink this, because wine mixed with myrrh was a way of uh, sedating somebody and sort of dulling their senses. And so they'd offer it to somebody in order to minimize the pain. What you're about to go through is terrible. Drink this, minimize the pain. And it happens in Mark chapter 15. It's offered to him as a charity to lessen the pain. And you know what Jesus did? He rejected that wine. And the reason he rejected it was because he had already told the Father, I will fully drink the cup of wrath reserved for me in Gethsemane. He said, I'm going to drink it all down. And he did. He bore the penalty to its full. No, this wine is different. And he receives this one. And the reason why is because it's wine vinegar. It doesn't dull the pain and it doesn't minimize it one bit. This is cheap and sour wine used by the soldiers and the commoners. It is served to the Lamb of God on a hyssop branch. And every one of those details, I'm going to argue, are extremely significant. Hyssop branches were used long time ago and still currently around Passover season. Jewish people, Israelites, they used hyssop branches, and they would know this. Hyssop branches were used to sprinkle on doorposts during the original Passover in Exodus 12, verse 22, which says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the, the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And with that reason, they, they did that, right? So that God would pass over, his wrath would pass over the sins of those that were in the household. And hyssop was the instrument through which the blood of the lamb was a, applied to the sinner. David also refers to God using hyssop to purify and clean him from his sin. He says, purge me with hyssop and make me clean. This is very important. It is entirely possible that John means nothing more than to inform us of these details about the wine and about the branch, but whether intended by John or not, and I believe it is just from how rarely John includes details without big picture mindset, I believe that there is a neat analogy that we can draw here. You see, wine in John is mentioned twice before this, alluded to twice. The first one's when Jesus turns water into wine. You remember that? Way back in John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine, and it's poured, by the way, not just from a basin, not just from a pitcher. It says that he turns the water into wine in these big, massive jars used for rites of purification, for seasons where they needed to make sure that they were clean. Wine was poured from those and rites of purification to make God's people clean. An early symbol of Jesus providing blood that would purify people. The second instance is alluded to at Jesus when he's at the Last Supper, that his blood would be poured out, that they had to drink it. This is my blood. It was applied to you. You will be washed and made clean. Purified, I would say. And now we see Jesus is absorbing the sour wine, listen please, Jesus is absorbing the sour wine from the branch used for applying the spotless blood of the lamb to the sinner in order that the wrath of God would be passed over from the sinner to the lamb. Where Jesus absorbs the impure to absolve the impure. At Calvary we see the absorbing of sin and the absolving of the sinner. And I can't help but think that John has an image here that he's trying to portray. That Jesus is drinking in the sour while he's pouring out the pure. A great exchange. And it's done in a hyssop branch. Used for passing over 
the sins of people, a substitution. This is the hill that God's church must be willing to die on. That the only funeral that would outlast this weekend was not for the man on the cross, but for the sin that he destroyed when he shouted, it is finished. That's the only funeral that would last beyond Passion Weekend. There's a word that you'll see on that third, third or fourth point that I gave you, the great exchange. Go ahead and throw that slide back up there if you will. I should have mentioned that a minute ago. That's not English. <laughs> You're like, what in the world? What is this? You may have seen that on like bracelets or maybe on a t-shirt. The word is tetelestai, and it's a Greek word. And I put it up there not because I want you guys to learn Greek. I want you to see the word for what it is. I highlighted the, the middle part in blue because Greek is kind of weird. The middle part is, uh, and by the way, the left and right are just transliterations of one another. The middle part is the root verb. And so the T-E at the front, it changes the tense. The thing on the back, it changes the, the person, which is not important all that is to say, if you took off that front white part and the back white part, you'd be left with the key, which holds the definition of the word. The word means uh, finishing. It means for something to reach its final end, the conclusion that it was intended for. It's from the verb teleo, brings the, de uh, the denotation of carrying out a task, completing a mission. And the reason I say it is because it's pretty significant here. It's the word for finished when Jesus says it is finished. It's used one other, one other time in John 13, verse 1. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, this is when Jesus was offering them the last supper, washing their feet. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, listen to this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word for the end there is astelos, to the finish, to the completion of the mission. Guys, listen. When Jesus cried, tetelestai, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. The thing that was reaching its finish was not the life of Jesus, it was the life of sin. And the greatest blow at Calvary was not dealt to Jesus, it wasn't dealt to his grieving loved ones, but it was dealt to the chains of sin which bind sinners. And this love for you, his love, was his motivation. It's so hard for me to lay this out in a way that you care about. In our culture, you're born with this veil. It's a, it's a Bible Belt culture veil that we recycle the words. A child that can't even hardly think can say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And we rehearse the terms and praise God that those words are on our children's lips. But because we've so rehearsed to know them at such a young age, we can say them, sing them, without even thinking of them, without even embracing them. So I'm going to say this again. Jesus bore a gory, brutal, horrible, shameful, disgracing death 
the only God-man who ever lived, ever will live, and the only one who ever never deserved it. He bore the penalty. He shed the blood. And all these things are happening. Garments, and these things can be kind of confusing, but don't miss the last one. That the branch lifted to the mouth of the lamb that was slain is the branch that applies the blood to the one who deserves the slaying. God loves you. And you are just as deserving. You and I are just as deserving of a brutal death and separation from God than the guy that's dealing drugs than the prostitute on the corner, than the terrorist that flies planes into buildings. And that may sound absurd, but you, left to yourself, are just as separated from a holy God as they are. You're not good enough. And God, in His grace and mercy, knows that. And He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him you won't be wrapped in the garments of shame but can be wrapped in the garments of glory can we praise God for that guys that's a hill worth dying on I know it's time to go or time to end my time at least Let's pray and thank God for that. And before we do, I know that there are people in this room that really wrestle with doubt. There are people in this room that have never come to a point in their life where they've confessed their sin and said, God, I I've never come to a point in my life. I, I know that. I play church and I, and I do this thing. I do all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. I rehearse the words, but they never hit me here. If that's you today, there is no shame in falling on your face and saying, God, save me. And no one in this room will think one ounce less of you if today you make that official. Get over yourself and pray and give your life to Jesus.